The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. Thanks for joining us to learn more about the week ahead in stocks and the longer-term market outlook. My guests today are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Barry Bannister, Chief Equity Strategist at Stiefel. Someone out there read Ben's trader column this past weekend about why the market might finally be putting in a low because stocks are up across the board today, and what a welcome change that is after so many months of selling. Welcome to you, Ben and Barry, and thanks for joining me today on Barron's Live. Thanks, Lauren. So, Barry, I'm going to start with you today. You said last week, the market is always three months ahead of reality. I love that quote. And I'm wondering now, what is the reality? What does the market see over the next three months or longer that perhaps the rest of us might have missed? Well, the the big question in the market lately has been, will inflation fall and will it fall fast enough to satisfy the Fed? Because the Federal Reserve has been hiking short-term rates. Um, they've been tightening up and, and inverting what's called inverting the yield curve, driving rates you know, out to a couple of years above long-term yields that are available in the market. So imagine you um, are sitting out there investing at a 10-year maturity. If somebody raises the short-term rate above your return, it puts you upside down. It means that uh, they are making money tighter and they're causing stress. So our view has been that does inflation fall? Yes. Uh, the momentum of inflation, just take, for instance, what's called the three-month rate of change annualized. It has already rolled over sharply. It's actually running on the CPI at 2%, which has been the Fed's talked about goal. Um, so the momentum of inflation and all the leading indicators of inflation point down. But will that satisfy the Fed? They have a meeting November 2nd and December 14th. Um, how much do they raise rates? Do they keep going? And more importantly, since what's um, embedded in the market is the current expectations of what they'll do, will they get even tighter at the margin? Because it's that it's what we call it the second derivative in math. It's um, will they go from tight to even tighter or will they just stay tight? If they just stay where they are in terms of the forward guidance, the futures, um, then you would actually see a rally because what's embedded in the market now is that level and not getting tighter is a positive. So you think that will happen? Yeah, I don't think they need to get tighter. For example, if you take what's called the 10-year real yield, the 10-year treasury tips or treasury inflation protected security, it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. But uh, one has a short career betting against the entire collective wisdom of the treasury market. It is the largest, most liquid market in the world. Um, so if you believe that the 10-year tips yield, which is now 1.5, equal to its post-1997 average. I start in 97 because that's when the tips was rolled out. So we are at the average real yield of the last 25 years, 1.5%. Um, it is way up 
from where it was. It was minus 1.25 when the correction first started, the bear market first started at the end of 2021. And that drove growth stocks price to earnings multiples up because your real return alternative was actually negative. Now that it's positive, it has this huge effect in the market. In bond terms, it's called convexity. It's a very complicated subject, but generally speaking, uh, that liftoff from the lows is very negative for price earnings ratios. It gets progressively less negative as you go up, but initially it's a huge shock. So I, I think that what's embedded in the market is enough to slow things down, and we're seeing it across the board. And we're seeing stress overseas, as you know. Right, in, in the UK for one. So I'm curious, where do you and others at Stiefel see fair value on the S&P 500 as you look out? Months? Yeah, so what we do is two things. Uh, one, uh, we found historically, and I've done a lot of historical work on the market. Um, we found historically that the Schiller CAPE, uh, the cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio, the price to earnings on trailing 10-year inflation-adjusted earnings. When you think about it, that's, you know, the true earnings power of the stock market is it's trailing 10 years. But because money in the distant past 10 years ago is not worth this, you know, you have to gross it up for inflation. So it takes an inflation-adjusted, bringing all the money to the current price level, and then inflation-adjusted earnings, which is right now $156. That's what the S&P earned uh, inflation-adjusted the last 10 years. If you buy the market at 36 and change, 100 on the S&P index, and I'm using the S&P. I could use the Russell 1000 large cap as well. I could even use the Wilshire 5000 if I wanted to. You know, it gives pretty much the same answer. Um, if you buy the market, you're getting 156 divided by whatever price you pay for the S&P index. And that's 4.25%. And that's a real yield. That's a yield after inflation. Collectively, companies across the board, the entire economy, they raise prices somewhat in line with inflation historically. Um, and so the real yield on stocks is four and a quarter. The real yield on a risk-free basis is the 10-year tips. It's 1.5%. I'm still getting an attractive return. And on that basis, we calculated about $3,900 uh, as fair value, plus or minus about $400, meaning um, you know, we had good support at $3,500 in line with every post-World War II, 1947 to present uh, 12 recessions. We had good support at $3,500, and we have a lot of resistance around $4,300. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, it's a wide range. It's 3,900 plus or minus 10%. Uh, but the market looked oversold to us and was bordering on the exact decline in real terms that has occurred in all 13 recession or 12 recessions on average since 1947. So, so far, moving in the right direction today. What do you think the doom and gloom crowd is getting wrong at the well, I think that they think that the Fed is trying to reestablish its credibility. So, you know, never ascribe to actions more than is really needed to be uh, interpreted. So the Fed messed up. It's like that uh, line from Ocean's Eleven 21 years ago, like you had one job, you know, Don Cheadle asked, you had <laughs> one job. Uh, your job was to see inflation and they didn't see it. So, you know, the Fed has to struggle to establish its legitimacy in order not to have Congress change its mandate. And so having not seen the inflation coming with the egregiously excessive monetary and fiscal policy that we 
we were in front of that, uh, not so much from the price inflation angle, but because of the distortions of asset prices. You know, I was in 2021, I was writing and saying on TV comments that got me in trouble. They were so blunt. Uh, <laughs> you I, don't sound like a shrinking violet even now. No, but I said something about Powell that got me in trouble. But, uh, you know, I, I couldn't believe that uh, they were still doing QE into March of 22 when housing was already ripping. I couldn't believe that we passed after COVID had already peaked another $2 trillion of uh, stimulus in the American Rescue Plan. I mean, it was it was going to invite trouble by borrowing out of the future and distributing the money today. And in a sense, uh, it inflated assets, but also prices. Remember, if you you have to produce to generate income to buy goods. And what happened was we borrowed money from the future to create artificial income, to create demand. And unfortunately, the production did not precede it. So you had too much money chasing too few goods and you got a pop in inflation. Uh, but now that money supply, just using that as a metric, um, nobody at the Fed did, and they probably regret that. Uh, it went from uh, 3% prior to COVID to 27% a year later in March of 21, a year into it. And it's back to 3%. So the broad M2 money supply is down to a level that uh, actually the historical parallel to what we're dealing with today is immediately after World War II. And uh, money had shot up to fund the war. Um, there was a reopening. Uh, consumer demand that had been stifled was released. And there was inflation, double digit. And then it came down very sharply. The problem is it took five quarters to build inflation to a peak in June of 22. It'll take five quarters until the late summer, early fall of 23 to bring it down. It is a late cycle thing, inflation. It doesn't occur early. It occurs late. And so if the Fed is targeting a late cycle indicator, by definition, they over tighten. You know, you're steering way before you make the turn on a super tanker. And as a consequence, the Fed, the risk from the Fed has never been that inflation wouldn't come down. It was that the Fed would oversteer and tighten too much. Well, do you have a recession forecast or do you think they'll engineer the so-called soft landing? Well, when we look at, at data and uh, there's a lot of very cool data out there. Um, for one thing, exa for example, the Fed does a survey uh, and has done the survey for 40 years on how much cash by income level, by quintile. So the bottom 20, the second 20, the third 20, all the way up. And right now, the great middle class of America, those between uh, 40 and 80 percent of the income, so not the top 20 and not the bottom, you know, 39, but just the middle class is sitting on about $26,000 per household of cash. Now, to put that in perspective, in the decades prior to COVID, uh, that was about 5,000. So if you're sitting on 25,000 of cash and the other thing is payrolls, we take six month annualized change of total employed people. These are the total payrolls, the total number of people with jobs. Um, that is growing at twice its level prior to COVID. It grew about one and a half before COVID. Now it's growing at about three. So it will take a long time to bring, you know, payrolls down to a seriously low level. We calculate summer of 23. It will take a long time to wear off that excess cash, which itself is part of why we have inflation. There's too much money chasing too few goods. And so, no, I don't think there's an inflation, a recession coming. And your best indicator of, of a recession, historically, your best indicator by far 
is the 10-year minus three-month curve. So you take the 10-year treasury minus the three-month treasury. And what we do different is we take a 50-day moving average. It's an equity concept to take a 50-day running average of the yield curve. And what we find is that it has a 100% record, no false signals, um, and it predicts that it will invert uh, in early December of 2022. And it has a nine-month mean and median, so the middle and the average. It also has a nine-month trend mean. Uh, and it says nine months after that inversion, you're looking at a classical recession, which would be the late summer of uh, 2023. So, yeah, we will have one. Uh, the question is, you know, how deep, whether the Fed pivots before then um, and what foreign stimulus does. I'm watching China very closely. They historically do quite a bit to stimulate their economy in the first quarter of every year and have done so for a decade. I think she is different. Uh, but I think in the end, I have a, a bit of a put option on the Chinese regime in that they can't afford to have a recession. So they help the industrial side of global growth. Uh, they help the demand for minerals. Um, they help um, uh, the non-U.S. markets obtain exports. Um, and uh, as a consequence, I think that we'll have a very mild recession starting around the late summer of 23. But that's way beyond the horizon of the market. The market Historically, we found that whether it was a shock or anticipated by policy, the market only plunged one month before the actual start of a recession, which itself was declared after the fact. So important to remember is the market's not going to see the recession coming. And that fits perfectly with uh, late summer when they think they're in the clear. And that's when we'll go to a sell uh, because the market is going to be uh, likely to experience the secondary shock or reverberation of the policy mistakes that are being made now. I'm putting that in my calendar to call you back for late summer. Yeah, we should have a call. I think June would be the perfect time. Um, All right. Uh, but yeah, the, the problem is that policies don't just have a lagged effect. They have a ripple effect. It's like throwing a stone in a river. And uh, you're going to see ripples from some of the policy actions taken now uh, that won't show up immediately, but they will make their way to shore over time. And uh, unfortunately, the Fed is in this battle to reestablish credibility, and that's why they're overdoing it. It'll be something to watch for sure, but I'll make a note of that. We will call you before the recession. So I want to switch to this week. We've talked about the longer term, but let's let's go back to this week and take a look at third quarter earnings. Ben is on the call, and he's going to walk us through some of the big ones. The banks have been reporting, and we are keeping an eye on Goldman Sachs earnings due out tomorrow. We've been positive on Goldman stock at Barron's, and we're going to have more to say about the bank's big plan to reorganize its business, which was reported today. So, Ben, I'm going to ask you to go through a couple of earnings, starting with Goldman. Before I do, I'll remind listeners that we will take calls, excuse me, questions at the end of the call so please type in your questions now if you haven't already. So Goldman, reorganizing, earnings coming out tomorrow. What's the, what's the outlook, Ben? Well, it, it was interesting because last week, Atlantic Equities came out um, and downgraded both Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and basically warned that, you know, the declining investment banking activity uh, because of what's going on with monetary policy, the, the markets uh, are falling, that's hurting their assets. And um, just concerns about trading estimates being too optimistic. That was all worthy of a downgrade. And they also didn't see any near-term catalysts uh, to improve the risk-reward equation. In some ways, it feels like Goldman saw the same kind of thing. 
and has decided that, you know what, they need to, to do something different. So they're actually going to reorganize the bank into three units, um, one being kind of the, the, the units, uh, the businesses focused on Wall Street, so that'd be investment banking and trading. They're also putting uh, all their investing together, so that's wealth and asset management. They're also sticking Marcus, which is their um, high yield saving accounts for uh, consumers in there. And then they're going to have a third unit, which is kind of everything else, uh, particularly fintech. Um, part of this is, um, I was reading Mike Mayo's note on this over at Wells, Wells Fargo, um, and he was saying that part of this is just to shake things up and uh, at Goldman and trying to get the businesses more aligned. You know, if you've talked to people who um, work at the bank, you do know that there are often divisions between um, business units and there's a lot of competition between them. It could be pretty doggy uh, dog over there. Um, and so trying to align some things a little bit better, um, but also that there's it, it's by creating this third division that's everything else. Um, it, it doesn't seem to necessarily um, have a point yet, uh, especially because you're putting Marcus over in asset management where it might be better off with things like uh, Green Sky, um, their credit cards and things like that. Um, it seems like it might be dwarfed in asset management. Yeah, it's it's but they also have wealth management and they're really trying to get that going. So it's just it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But they're really trying to refocus the bank, I think, and and get investors to refocus on the bank and think about how the uh, the bank is going to more emerge from what's uh, coming. Um, and will it be able to be, um, you know, as strong as it has been in the past? Something something definitely to watch. So let's talk about Charles Schwab also. They are coming out with earnings. They actually came out with earnings today. The earnings were very good, but there are some concerns about the business. Tell us more about that. Sure. So the earnings were great. Um, revenue was up 20% uh, year over year. Um, they beat uh, earning estimates for Bucko 5 uh, with a print of $1.10 a share. Um, and so all that was um, above the consensus. Um, one of the things that people have been worried about um, is what's happening with their, um, almost internally, um, as people move money from their sweep accounts, kind of these, you know, just uh, almost no interest rate um, accounts that you have um, at the bank and are moving money into money market accounts. And there's a little bit of worry there that, um, you know, that uh, this cash sorting is going to have an impact on, on the business over overall. Um, so I think that's one thing uh, that's going on. But they did have um, some pretty strong net income um, uh, revenue uh, that, that, that comes from the higher rate. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But right now, there does seem to be some worry, because even though we're having this great day in the uh, in the stock market, the, uh, the stock is doing pretty terribly. It was uh, when I checked early this morning, it was up maybe 0.3 percent. Now it's down four. Hmm. Uh, so, so there really is some worry here about uh, about the business, and I think the mix there as well. Right. Obviously, investors have picked up on that. And then just a few words, if you would, on Blackstone, which is synonymous with private equity, the company will be reporting on Thursday. Sure. So their earnings are supposed to come in at 99 cents. That's going to be down from a year ago. Um, I, I think what's, uh, what we haven't seen yet from private equity is just the kind of markdowns that we've experienced in the equity markets. Um, and so there is um, some worries about that. If the markdowns will be coming, um, conditions for private equity aren't good. It's, it costs more to fund um, takeovers and, um, you know, they're it, it, getting access to, um, to to credit for takeovers is harder um, and, and just there's less M&A overall. And so um, it, there could be some pressure um, 
uh, from uh, on BlackRock because of that. And um, it, it, again, everything here is going to be forward looking. And so there's a good chance that they beat. But I think it's going to be what they say about um, about the business conditions going forward. that are really going to determine how the stock responds. Will be worth listening to, certainly. Um, let's talk for a moment about metals. Barron's had a bullish piece this past weekend by our colleague Andrew Berry on mining stocks. And we'll hear from Alcoa and Freeport McMoran this week. They were among his picks. Tell me what the outlook is for the mining sector. Oh, they're under some some pressure. The stocks have been. Alcoa is down 36% this year. Uh, Freeport is down 34 This was all before... Um, uh, this is all at uh, Friday's close. Um, with uh, um, Alcoa, the um, UBS was saying that the aluminum market is actually in a small surplus and should remain that way for 12 months. That could uh, put some pressure on there. But I think the uh, uh, the one thing that can affect things, as Barry mentioned, is uh, you know Chinese um, economic growth. If they can, if China starts getting uh, its act together a little more, you could get uh, some pickup in demand for both aluminum and also for copper, which is what uh, Freeport. Uh, um, Freeport does. Um, but there's also both companies are dealing with some cost pressures um, as well as just falling prices at this point. And so uh, for, for Andrew Barry, who wrote the story, you know, he's looking out and he's saying, you know, there's a lot of long term reasons uh, to be bullish on these companies. Aluminum and uh, all the other industrial metals are going to be needed for EVs and things like that. So there is going to be demand for them. And they've also fallen enough that he thinks a lot of the really bad news is already priced into the stocks. Well, down 36 and 34 percent, that would suggest as much. Barry, I'm curious, when you look across the landscape, what's your take on earnings? Do you think we're going to wind up the year pretty strongly, better than expected? What do you think? Yeah, well, we've been below the street on uh, earnings. We use the Standard & Poor's operating feed, which goes directly through uh, a Bloomberg terminal uh, and the earnings were supposed to be around 205, 206 just this year, uh, but we're actually a little below that at 202, 203. We're looking at roughly flat year over year. It's important to remember that that super stimulus of 2020 to 21 caused earnings to rebound 70. That's 70 percent year over year, uh, 21 over 20. And so as a consequence, it's very hard to hurdle that. Uh, you're at a very high level of margins, you know, asset turnover, leverage. That's the product of ROE times book value is earnings per share. So when you look at the earnings growth, we were already at roughly zero as all the indicators that we track from the ISM to durable goods uh, had indicated would be the case. Uh, next year, though, we were seeing some rebound. But even if we impute the median drop of earnings in the post-World War II period of 17%, which is aggressive since the recession, if it begins, would not have begun immediately, it began later in the year. But even if we impute 17% to earnings, uh, it doesn't drag down that 10-year average inflation-adjusted earnings number that far. Instead of 164, it's 160 or 159, and that's against 155, 156 this year. So as a consequence, uh, it doesn't change that earnings yield that I'm getting from the S&P. I'm getting 4.2%. It's a real yield. Um, it, it means that I'm uh, attractive uh, versus the risk-free yield, and that's called equity risk premium. So I'm getting 300 basis points more than the risk-free yield to own the stock market, or roughly 2.75% more. So all I would say to people is don't panic. This is... Um, 
you know, the market was down in real terms, using inflation adjusting the S&P price. It was down about 30 percent at 3,500 intraday a few days ago. And that was the bottom on the day that the CPI came out Thursday. Right. And it bounced off of that roughly a couple of times. And uh, 3,500 down 30% is one of the major bear markets in the last, you know, 75, 80 years. And I would not urge anyone to sell. Uh, so earnings, uh, we're looking for, uh, I, I think when we finish our model, we're going to probably go ahead and forecast uh, down earnings in 23 over 22. But it really won't make that much of a difference because the real yields have already started to peak. We were at one six yesterday. We're at one five today. That 10 point basis point drop in the 10 year real yield is one of the biggest reasons why we have a rally today. So I would urge all the listeners to put 10 year tips yield on your screen. I watch it every day. Um, if it's down, we're going to have an up day. And it's usually led by longer duration growth stocks, um, but also cyclicals on relief from not having a recession if that's the con if that becomes the consensus in the near term. So the market is rallying on the cyclical front, which we had said we like the cyclical growth. Uh, which is, you know, the big tech, uh, but we also like the cyclical value. What we're not interested in right now is defenses. This would be food, beverage, tobacco, uh, mm -hmm. staples, uh, and, you know, uh, defensive stocks, things you have to buy. Um, so what we prefer is cyclical, and that's everything from software and semiconductors and computer hardware like Apple, all the way down to, uh, home builders, believe it or not, on a, a, on the peaking of the mortgage spreads to the treasury and the uh, uh, banks and financials uh, and the real estate, real estate investment trusts. So I would be more cyclical for the next six months on this delayed recession, Fed tight, but not getting loose, but then not tightening more and uh, heading into what has undoubtedly been the strongest six months for the market in uh, you know in seven in 60 years of 70 years of data in fact 100 years um it's it's amazing how all the returns are generated november to april essentially sell in may and go away i guess really does bear out well brokers are not lazy you know they, <laughs> they, they're not i mean especially you know sell side people uh we work all the time um and it's like being in, um, a doctor's like that. They work all the time when they're not. My grandfather would read medical journals when he came back from the hospital until 12 at night. Same thing with us. And, if and financial have, reporters, I just want to add. Yeah. And, and if you have a, a sort of a historical fact, which is that if I had invested, it's just an amazing statistic. If I could go back to my young, young, young child self and say, okay, do this investment thing. And by the way, here's the rule to live by. Uh, one is don't fight the Fed. And I, <laughs> so whenever I fight the Fed, like since uh, Jackson Hole, I get annihilated. Uh, but the other, the other rule is um, all the money is made November to April cumulatively. So going back to 1961, if you had told your broker, I only want to invest November to April 30th. So that's six months then you basically kept up with the market return and you did it with lower volatility or risk. But if you had told your broker, I only want to invest the other six months, May to October, believe it or not, 
you only made 13% in 61 years. And that's from your original principal. So it's hideous. I mean, it's... Um, well, it's a good thing most people don't invest that way. No, no. But what I would say is if you're going to instruct a trust or an estate or a will, or if you are a pension manager, uh, it, it, it behooves you not to be bearish in late October, early November. And it behooves you not to be bullish in late April, early May. Uh, and two out of three times it works. And when it works, it works so well that cumulatively over 60 years, um, you're talking about thousands of uh, percent difference in return. So it makes a big difference. it's tr truly astonishing. Um, and it's, it's because of the human nature, it's the Northern hemisphere. Most economic activity does uh, occur uh, in, the, in, the, in the colder months because, you know, getting ready for the spring. Um, and uh, summer is a bit lazy. And uh, there's a reason for that. It's a fascinating factoid. And it we'll is. See, we'll see what happens next year, but I think there's something to it for sure. Ben has to hop in two minutes. And so I'm going to save the listener questions for you, Barry. But I wanted Ben just to give us a quick heads up on Tesla, which is reporting Wednesday. Yeah, Tesla's been an interesting one. Uh, it's down 42% this year. At one point, it was actually holding up much better um, than most other growth stocks and uh, um, and even most big tech, except for, for Apple. But that's that's really changed. Um, and it's come down um, on, on Friday, it came down and actually, I think, came very close to an, um, a new low. The level that the uh, the bears are really watching is 200. That's the one where if... Uh, if that holds, there's there's probably good news for the company. But right now, it does uh, have a lot of um, headwinds. Um, you have uh, concerns about uh, China, um, where it seems like maybe demand for its EVs have peaked. Um, and uh, you know, you had this initial reaction to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act um, by all stocks that were exposed to that that has faded a bit. Though I think the long term boost from that should be uh, pretty good. They should get a real benefit from it. Um, and, and so right now, it's just a question of, you know, are they going to be able to keep growing the way that they have grow been growing? How are they going to deal with more expensive money? Um, and are they going to be able to keep up with all the competition out there? They do have a great uh, head start. Um, and, you know, so as long as they can hold this 200 level, technically, they're probably in good shape. But if that breaks, there's a lot more downside. How are we all going to deal with more expensive money? It's the question of the season. Very, very true. Right. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lauren. And Barry, thanks, I'm going to keep you on for a few minutes. We have some listener questions that have come in, and I think they're tailor-made for you. Hal wants to know whether you consider 10-year treasuries a buy at 4%. Yeah, before I do that, I've been reading Barron's for 40 years, and um, I can tell you that um, Ben's column is excellent. And uh, it's really worth having a subscription. Um, so on the 10-year yield, you're asking me, where is it heading? Yes. Uh, no, not where is it heading, but our treasuries are buy at 10%. This is a question from Hal. Yeah, I think that treasuries are very attractive uh, as a part of a portfolio. Now, one thing that has flipped here is what they call bond stock correlation. It was for 20 years in a world glutted with excess savings. The Chinese would work very hard and save their money. The Eastern Europeans would work very hard and save their money. And so the world had too much savings relative to what it wanted to do with those savings. And as a consequence, we mostly had deflationary risk. We mostly had low, low interest rates. And a lot of people aligned themselves for that. But 
at about 4%, Treasury's become fairly attractive at the very least because it does mitigate some of the volatility in a portfolio, but also because the returns are approaching, if you can do it tax-free, it's ideal, but the returns are approaching uh, you know, within two-thirds of what we would expect the market return to be in the next 10 years. In other words, you're getting almost two-thirds of the market return at 4%, um, and you're doing it with no you know, risk of default. You'll get repaid. It may just be paper, but you will get repaid. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that uh, anything around 4% on a 10-year and beyond is really attractive, and you've gotten within uh, inches of that very recently. And uh, um, so, yeah, uh, but, but it, it has a tendency in these kind of slowdowns and after the Fed uh, doesn't get marginally tighter to fall very quickly. So if the yield falls very quickly, don't be surprised. Okay, moving on to stocks or moving back to stocks. Amira asks, which sector of the economy do you see winning in 2023? So maybe give us an overview of your favorite sector. Yeah, I talked about, I talked about that to a degree earlier. You know, yeah. I mentioned the software and the, uh, the alphabet within media, and I mentioned Apple within hardware, and I mentioned semiconductors, but you're better off indexing those than picking stocks um, and uh, semiconductor index. Um, and then I mentioned the financials, the banks, uh, but also the real estate. There are REIT index funds that you can buy. Um, energy on the dip. I'm not interested in energy now, but I think that we have begun what's called a secular bull market for commodities. Uh, we had actually called this, we started calling, I tend to be early, unfortunately, because you know, I get in early and I get out early, but I get that big move off the bottom. So net, net, you come out ahead. Um, but uh, we were talking about the secular bull market and commodities and what's called a secular bear market in the S&P in a Barron's interview, actually, in June of 2019, if anyone wants to pull it up. Uh, there was a three-page article where, where I talked about the low returns in the 2020s. As a consequence of that, um, um, you know, a low return for stocks uh, in, the, in, the, in the low single digits uh, but commodities doing fairly well, I would buy energy on a dip, a slowdown, and I think oil could drop to $60, but then that would be a screaming buy um, if you get there. The risk now on energy and the economy is not even the Fed, and we didn't talk about this, but it's this geopolitical risk with Europe imposing these sanctions on Russian oil in late November, early December. But if that goes haywire and Russia embargoes or, you know, oil is withheld from the market in multiple million barrels, then oil shooting up would be full stop bearish for the market. The market would go very quickly to 3,200 if oil shoots up into the hundreds again. Um, and so I'm very um, nervous about the way the Ukraine-Russia conflict is being handled. So that's that's an aside. But you mentioned what stocks I said, uh, cyclicals, uh, mostly uh, the, the bigger tech, uh, just because I think yields and rates on a real basis have peaked um, uh, and and cyclical value, because I don't see a recessionary kind of economy in the next six months. Um, but um, that's where I would be. And I, I've, I've gone through those names. So I had a related question from Majid, who asks, he mentions that research going back to the 1950s shows that when the S&P is down by a high 20% or so, 
in the next two to three years following that sell-off, there's a strong gain in the S&P. So if that's the case, shouldn't one avoid picking individual stocks, he asks, and just invest in the index itself? Well, indexing's become so prolific and uh, in terms of what it covers. uh, I said before, you know, if you wanted to index to just software or semiconductors or banks, you can buy an index to expose yourself to that entire industry without picking an individual bank or software maker. So yeah, it's, um, it's fine to do that. Now, if you buy the broader index to answer the question on like the market, yeah, you're correct. I'm always a little reluctant, but as I said, if I could go back to my younger self, uh, and I mean very young, you know, 60 years, 50 years ago, uh, I would say, you know, uh, in a midterm year, in a, um, off of off of 25% plus off of the top uh, and with um, November 1st just around the corner, then you are better off buying stocks and just not worrying about the risk. It should feel bad to take a long position. If it feels good, it's probably a mistake. <laughs> if it feels Never bad, the contrarian. it's very, well, it's true. It, if yeah. it feels too easy and the money's coming too easy and it feels good, then it's probably a mistake. Um, you have to buy fear. And uh, I would say up until this last week, you know, we had a lot of fear and that CPI number was quite a disappointment in intraday. You did touch 3,500, which was down 1,300 points from January the 3rd. So I want to ask one question about China before we go. Um, We've got the Chinese, the Communist Party holding its 20th National Congress this week and effectively enshrining Xi Jinping as leader for life. But today, China said it would delay the release of GDP and other economic data that were scheduled for tomorrow. What do you make of this development? Well, I had just learned how to pronounce Li Qixiang, and he's on his way out. So I'm really (laughs) upset about that. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think that um, China, you know, there's some who say it's a revisionist power. It's not like the rise of Japan, which you know, did a stellar job of becoming a very rich country. Um, China is different. Uh, they uh, they have, you know, wider aspirations globally for, you know, a competing system. And so the U.S. and China are in a bit of a cold war because of different systems. Uh, I don't think it has to become, you know, uber hot. Um, but uh, unfortunately, those things do happen occasionally. Uh, I don't look for China to be a major there's just too much to lose on their end to engage in significant hostilities in the next five to seven years. But beyond seven years, I think something's coming and uh, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, cooler heads will prevail. Uh, But um, there's issues related to Taiwan. There's issues related to the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, military bases throughout the Indian Ocean over to West uh, East Africa. Uh, there's a lot going on. So uh, uh, she is a different different kind of manager. He uh, he has these broader as- aspirations. Uh, I would recommend if anyone wants to read a good book on uh, China, read On China by Henry Kissinger. It's about 3,000 pages, but he starts uh, 5,000 years ago and goes to the present day and does a very good job of talking about China and how they view themselves and how the world views them. Um, it's uh, It's quite fascinating. All right. So it sounds like you don't read much into the delay of the release of GDP data, though. 
the delay of their G well, China has already moved from a target of just GDP for GDP's sake to uh, quality growth. Uh, one thing I would I would say this is a very important point is that it's the GDP per working age person, so roughly eighteen to sixty five. If you do it on that metric, believe it or not, just taking Japan as an example, their major growth cycle peaked in 1990. Since 1990, despite all the troubles and travails of Japan in the last 32 years, they have actually outperformed the rest of the G7 on GDP per working age person. You know, it's children and very old people don't really count. They're not producing. Um, and so China's goal, if I had to pick out what they're really trying to do here, is to grow GDP per working age person and then just handle all the other stuff, the, you know, getting more children, uh, taking care of elders, uh, handle that on the side. But if the people, meaning the, the people that are more active in everything in life, you know, just, you know, 18 to 65, um, if those people's income per capita is going up at a good clip, then they will be satisfied with the government. And there will be stability inside of China. And I think that is their goal, is to grow that GDP per capita per working age person for the next 30 years. Uh, it will entail lower overall GDP, but it will be still good for the people who are uh, a working age. That makes sense. Well, I want to thank you, Barry. We've reached the end. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we will, we will surely have you back sometime in that, in that May to October stretch. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate there won't that. be much action on Wall Street as you predicted, but let me know. Uh, let me know anytime, Lauren. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. Thanks for your good questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Associate Editor for Technology Eric Savitz will speak with longtime tech fund manager and finance professor Paul Meeks about the outlook for technology stocks. Hope you'll be on that call tomorrow. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.